0: I'm really excited to begin this series in Acts um, for a lot of reasons, but but most of all, just because we see in Acts sort of the birth of the church. Christ has given his life he's been resurrected we'll see in these first few verses today him uh, ascending back into heaven and then the the mission to the church is is uh, begins to be fulfilled begins to be worked out in the life of the church and so there's lots of exciting things that happen uh, in the book of acts and i think this book is going to be particularly helpful and pertinent to us as a church body going into this year as we kind of begin a new season a new chapter of ministry as a church it's always good to remind ourselves uh, of the fundamentals, of what is most important, of what makes us who we are, and what, what the mission is that Christ has given to us. And so I'm really excited about this series, and I hope that you are too. We'll be in Acts for the majority of this year. I'll just let you know that ahead of time. Uh, 34 sermons in Acts, and we're going to take a few breaks along the way. So don't worry, we're not just going to plow straight through. We're going to go uh, uh, 10, 12 weeks at a time or so, take a break, and, uh, and focus on some other things outside of the book of Acts uh, that are related to some of the things that I feel God is leading us as a church to be in this year ahead. So I'm very excited about 2018. I hope and pray that you are as well, and, uh, and if you aren't, that you'll get excited. So uh, the part of helping you to get excited about the year ahead will be to join us next Sunday evening, uh, like we said, for that town hall, and then on the 28th for worship as well. As we begin this series in the book of Acts, I want to kind of just help us to understand the context of the book and what's going on there and and just deal with some of the particulars of this. We we know and understand that the Bible didn't just uh, miraculously appear in in its full form under a rock in the middle of Palestine 2,000 years ago, but that God uh, used through his Holy Spirit uh, human authors to write his word to his people. And the author that God used to write this book of Acts is uh, the man named Luke, who also wrote uh, the gospel that's also named after him, Luke's gospel. Luke was a doctor. He's a missionary companion uh, to the apostle Paul that we read about in the book of Acts as we go through there. Uh, Luke writes this book, Acts, and and also his gospel uh, called Luke to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is a, a Greek name that literally means lover of God or one who is loved by God. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke refers to Theophilus as most excellent, calls him most excellent Theophilus, indicating that this guy, Theophilus, is probably someone of means and status in the Roman Empire. He's got money, and quite likely, Theophilus is Luke's patron. He's the one who's funding Luke's uh, historical work on Jesus and the, uh, the early church. Luke is writing Luke and acts his gospel and and um, and this book of Acts somewhere between the years uh, sixty two and sixty four a d most likely uh, the reason we can um kind of uh, uh, ferret out that he's he's writing between 62 and 64 AD is because one he doesn't mention specifically the persecution of the emperor Nero that begins in 64 65 that's a pretty big deal for the church when the emperor Nero begins uh, sort of systematically persecuting Christians in the Roman Empire the fact that Luke doesn't mention that uh, leads us to believe that that the events of, of Acts are hap- or that he's writing Acts prior to 62 uh, 64 AD sometime in that time also a Another significant thing happened in Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., and that is that the temple was destroyed. Uh, Rome came in and and totally destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. For someone writing a history of uh, either of the Hebrews or of the church... In, in the first century, to not include uh, the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD would be a major misstep of any historian writing after the fact. It would be like someone writing a history of the United States today in 2017 and, and failing to mention 9-11. Right? So, uh, so the fact that Luke doesn't mention the destruction of the temple leads us to believe that he was probably writing before 70 AD and it had not yet happened. As we look at Acts as a whole, if I were to just summarize this this book, 28 chapters, in just a few sentences, I I might do it this way. We understand Acts is the second of Luke's two-volume history of Jesus and the church. And in his gospel, Luke traces all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. Uh, Luke lets us know that in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We'll see in a moment. In Acts, however, Luke is tracing the work of the apostles, Jesus' disciples. He's tracing the spread of the gospel in, the Roman, in Jerusalem and in Judea and into the Roman Empire and the growth of the church as well. The book of Acts follows the spread of the gospel from these 11 remaining disciples of Jesus to Jerusalem, then to the Gentiles, then to Rome, and then to the known world through Paul. And we're going to see that happen as we work through this book together over the course of this year. There's sort of four major movements in the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 7, we see the gospel of Jesus growing and expanding in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, the gospel begins to go outside of Jerusalem to the area of Judea and Samaria... From chapters 13 through 20, the narrative follows largely Paul and his missionary efforts. And there we see the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And then in the last seven or so chapters, uh, chapter 21 through 28, we see the gospel on its way to to Rome itself, the capital of the empire, and expanding throughout the empire as a whole. This morning we, we begin our journey through Acts in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. A sermon that I've titled, You Will Be My Witnesses, because it comes straight out of the text this morning, and that's sort of the point of this passage. And here we see Acts, the book of Acts, beginning with the risen and ascended Christ's promise of his continued ministry through his Spirit-empowered followers. Jesus' ministry is going to continue through his followers who he empowers with his Spirit. Will you stand with me this morning as we read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." God bless the reading of his word in this series in Acts as we begin. You be seated. As we deal with just the first few verses of the book of Acts, we begin to see early on how it is we're to look at this book and read it and understand it as a, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. As we read the book of Acts and as we go through it as a church together, the the, the impetus is upon us to read this book like a missionary, to read Acts like a missionary. In reading Acts, like we are a missionary, like we are one sent uh, with the gospel of Jesus, we look first at the purpose of this book. This we see in verses 1 through 3, right? Where here Luke picks up in this second volume of his history from where his gospel left off. And in this volume of Luke's history, he's summarizing where he concluded with his gospel, with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Jesus has... Been appearing in his resurrected form for some 40 days to his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom. I've heard one pastor say, Can you imagine what sort of Bible conference that would have been? Like, you have Jesus risen from the dead in your presence, appearing and going away and appearing and going away over a course of 40, uh, 40 days, teaching you about stuff. Like, that's just all, Like, man, that would be awesome. I'd sign up for that conference. The purpose of Acts is to pick up where Luke left off in his gospel, but but there's a shift in the focus, right? Now now we're not looking so much at Jesus' ministry himself, but Jesus' ministry continued in the lives of his apostles. In reading like a missionary, we see the purpose of Acts, but we also see the mission of Acts, the mission that is played out and is is, um, pursued throughout the course of this book. That we have in verse 8 of chapter 1, right, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. The mission of the church is the focus of the book of Acts. The church, the disciples, being witnesses to all the earth is the mission of Acts. And it's the mission for the church even today. So as we seek to read as a missionary, read Acts like a missionary, seeing the purpose of the book, seeing the mission that's on on display, and and that it applies to us as well. We also read Acts looking for and looking at and learning from the catalyst for the mission. The catalyst for the mission. A catalyst is something that that gets a, 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 a chemical process going. Right? So, uh, of course, I don't have a good example of that right now. So, if you're lighting a fire, if you're setting a fire, right, the catalyst to the fire is striking a match. It's that, that friction on that, that sulfur dioxide sort of head on the end of the match that sparks it into flame. That's the catalyst. So, what is the thing that's, that's sort of setting the disciples on fire to fulfill the mission that Christ has given them? Well, first, we see in verses one through three that it's the risen and ascended Christ, He is the catalyst. He's the one who gives the mission to the disciples. He's the one who has been in his resurrected state over 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom, preparing them for the mission. He's the one who spent three plus years with them uh, during his earthly ministry, preparing them for the mission that he would give them. But he's not the only catalyst. There's a second catalyst, if you will, to the mission, and that is the, the Father promised Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit, which is promised by God the Father. In verses 4 and 5, we saw this. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit who will come upon His disciples to help them on mission. But the Holy Spirit doesn't come of His own accord. He comes from the Father. He comes from God the Father, promised by God the Father, which we saw in some part last week as we rounded out our series in Christmas and the Covenants, looking at the New Covenant, where God promises to put His Spirit in the hearts of His people. That's the promise that Jesus is referring to here and speaking about the Holy Spirit. So when we come to the book of Acts, when we prepare to read it and to learn from it, to apply it from our lives, it helps us to read Acts like a missionary. As we read like a missionary, we must read Acts so as to see the power and the patterns and the personalities that God uses to expand his kingdom. The power that God will use to expand his kingdom would be in the Holy Spirit and in his his word preached and proclaimed. The patterns we'll see in in patterns of like Peter and Paul and the way that they preach the gospel in different places they go. And the personalities, the kinds of people that God uses like Peter and Paul and James and Stephen and many others that, that we otherwise might not expect to be the kind of people that God would want to use to expand his kingdom, but yet he does anyway. So as we read Acts, we read it like a missionary so that we can see the power, the patterns, the personalities that God uses to expand his kingdom. Reading like a missionary requires us to read the book of Acts a little bit differently than we read like maybe Paul's letter to the Romans. It would be the difference between reading the U.S. Constitution and reading a biography of Thomas Jefferson. No, Thomas Jefferson was influential in the writing of the Constitution and, and uh, Declaration of Independence, and uh, influential in the founding of this country. Reading those documents that he helped to influence to write or that he wrote himself, uh, reading particular, in particular the Constitution, we read there the law. We read instructions for how the, the, the country is to be governed and how it's supposed to run. But if we read a biography of Jefferson, we don't read a a life of Jefferson so as to learn how we ought to live, but we read it to learn from his life, from the the context of the the world in which he lived and how those different things played into and and influenced the decisions that he made and the things that he wrote and the relationships that that, that he had, right? So you see the difference between how we read different kind of what we would call genres of literature uh, today, that applies to the Bible as well. We might read a letter uh, like Paul to the Romans with uh, like we would read the Constitution, right? He's giving uh, clear doctrinal statements about what the church must do and must believe and what is most important about the gospel. And we get some of that in Acts, but largely Acts is telling a story. It's telling a history of, of things that have gone on. And so we don't always learn necessarily directly from teaching in Acts, although that happens at times, but we learn more from the patterns and the personalities and the things that God is doing in there. So we read like a missionary, seeking to grow, seeking to learn, seeking to grow in closeness to Christ, closeness with God and His will, as we work through Acts and as we seek to fulfill the mission as well. We don't just read like a missionary, but as as we begin to apply the, the text of Acts one, one through eleven to our lives today, we see in verses four and five the importance of waiting on the Lord. We need to wait on the Lord. Jesus appears that Luke begins this, uh, this volume of his history uh, with, Luke, or with Jesus excuse me, appearing to his disciples, preaching to them, teaching them uh, over the course of 40 days. And then in verses 4 and 5, we read this, right? While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, you'll soon be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus has just spent 40, well, three years plus 40 days now in his resurrection state teaching the disciples about what it is they're there to do. And now he tells them after he's been raised from the dead and about to ascend into heaven, he says, wait. I've taught you all this stuff, but now just sit and wait a minute. Wait for the promise of the Father. Go back to Jerusalem and just wait. Be patient. Jesus, during the final days of this, his resurrected state, has instructed the disciples not to leave the place where they were staying, the city where he was crucified, but to wait for the Holy Spirit to come from God. Reminds us of Luke chapter 24, verse 49, where Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, when the promise of the Father comes, he will baptize you. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That word baptize in the Greek just literally means to be immersed. And so what we did with Henry this morning, we, we baptized him. We immersed him all the way in water. Jesus saying you'll be immersed in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, the one who's preparing the way prior to Jesus' earthly ministry, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. baptism of the Holy Spirit is an image then of the way that the Holy Spirit of God will fall on and envelop and dwell in the hearts of the apostles and the disciples. Every follower of Jesus from the moment of his falling at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which we'll see in a couple of weeks until the present day. Believer, once you, Christian, once you trusted Christ as Savior, as Lord, you received the promise of the Holy Spirit. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit. He came and made his home in your heart. This is a fulfillment of the promise of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 24 and following, right? We saw this last week, that God would put his spirit in the hearts of his people. All of that is coming to pass here in Acts. And Jesus is saying, you need to wait for that to happen before you do anything. Waiting is important. It is important to wait sometimes, to be patient, to not forge on in our own strength and in our own power. Jesus' command to the disciples to wait in Jerusalem, I think, tells us at least two things. First, the disciples and the church after them, right? We who are also disciples, followers of Jesus. The church are not personally capable of fulfilling the great commission on their own. They needed then and we need now divine intervention and help. Jesus has given to the church a mission that only they can fulfill in his power. If it was something that they could do without him, there's no need for Christ to ever come in the first place. So he says, wait, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, obedience to Christ, even in little things like timing, waiting for God to reveal something, God to give us clear direction, is absolutely critical when embarking on kingdom tasks. We cannot hope to fulfill the Great Commission or or to honor God in, in our efforts at ministry if we're not waiting on His timing and on His leadership in those things. He's given us a mission that we can't fulfill without his power in us to get it done. And so we also need to just learn to be obedient and sometimes just wait. Often in in, in churches and in, even in our family lives, we, we, we launch off onto these tasks of things that we're going to do and visions and missions and other things without giving any of it, uh, any time in prayer, devotion to God, trying to listen to him to, to see how he would guide and give us a wisdom and, and direction in that. It's important to wait on God. Friends, Jesus followers, his church, that's us today. His church must submit every ministry endeavor to the timing and leadership of God. Everything we seek to do, whether it's children or college students, whether it's youth or senior adults, whether it's the the series we're preaching through on a Sunday morning or our Sunday school curriculum, all of those things need to be submitted to the timing and to the leadership of God. We need to ask Him for wisdom and help in those things. And so let us not rush off into things that that are good but maybe not godly. Good but maybe not God-ordained for our church. It's important to wait for things all the time, and as as a parent, I'm acutely aware of this, at least with my children, and and reminding them to just w- just wait. You know, they all, our our girls love them to death. They're just like go getters, and they want to go do stuff like all the time. It's like you got you got to wait a second, right? It's like we're gonna go run errands to Costco. Costco for our family is like Disneyland. Okay, so. And it's, and it's, it's almost free, right? So we love to go to Costco and the girls, I feel like we've taught them, right? They love to go to Costco too. So we say, Hey, we're going to Costco. And the girls are like, boom, running out the door, ready to jump in the van and, and, and take off. Uh, but sometimes we need them to wait because there's things that we need to do first or the garage doors open. We don't want them to run out into the street, you know, or get hit by a car, which they do sometimes it's crazy. The things that kids do, but I'm reminded all the time, just in the fact that we have to tell our kids, wait, just wait. And it's not because we don't love you, it's not because we don't have good things planned for you, but it's because it's for your safety and for your good and for the productivity of our family. You just need to wait, hold your horses a second, friends. We need to wait on God sometimes. Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the good news is we who are trusting in Christ, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. But still, there's time for us to wait. There's time for us to hold off. There's time for us to, to sit and, and, and meditate on God's word and in prayer to him, asking him to speak and to lead clearly so that we don't just make a hot mess, dumpster fire out of whatever it is that he's leading us to do. It's important to wait. Wait. But, after, but but waiting also has a, a time of ending. We don't just sit and wait and sit on our hands forever as we seek to fulfill the mission. As we see in verses 6 through 11, it's important to stay focused on the mission that Christ has given to us. In Those verses, we read this, right? They, so when they had come together, now verse 6 happens... Probably sometime after verse 5, there's a break in the action there. So the assumption here is that Jesus has gone away, and now he's returned again in verse 6. And here they're meeting at the Mount of Olives, or the Mount called Olivet. When they had come together there on that mountain, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Uh, A cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Staying focused on the mission involves, first and foremost, understanding the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not political restoration, but gospel declaration. Disciples come to Jesus here on this mountain and say, Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do all the things we've expected this, this promised Messiah to do to make us a geopolitical power in the world again? Is that what you're doing? Are you restoring the kingdom back to Israel? with a king on the throne? You're going to be king on the throne. And, and Israel is going to be this, this amazing nation again. We're going to be the shining light on a hill for all the world to see. And all the things that we hope that David, the, you know, David's offspring uh, as king of Israel would be able to do. Are you doing that now? Do we, are we going to be somebody again? Jesus says, that's none of your business. He says, Get your head straight. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The mission of the church that Jesus gives to his disciples and to every disciple is not political restoration. Jesus' mission in the world is not for America to be the best nation in the world, it is for Christians to declare the gospel. It is for Christians to tell people about the good news that Jesus, the son of God, died on the cross in their place for their sins and rose from the dead so that they can enjoy eternal life as they trust in him as Savior and Lord. That's what is most important. That is the mission of the church. And Jesus clearly redirects, even even mildly rebukes his disciples for assuming that he might do something else. Friends, we need to understand the mission of the church. Staying focused on the mission also means that we understand what powers the mission. What's the the, the engine that is pushing this thing forward called the Great Commission? The Holy Spirit, Jesus promises, will in due time baptize the disciples and empower them for mission. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. This aspect of the Holy Spirit's empowering is really, really incredibly important for the disciples and for the church today. The power that the Holy Spirit will give the disciples is not, notice that, notice that Jesus does not say that this is a power to do miraculous things. Or that it's a power, uh, even though the, the, the disciples will do miraculous things. That's not what the Holy Spirit is coming primarily for them to do. It's a power to be witnesses of Christ to the nations. Not primarily to heal people miraculous, not primarily to speak in other languages, uh, not to do uh, uh, other sort of miraculous things, but to be witnesses of Christ to the nation. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Now, the miraculous events that we see in the book of Acts, and there are many, should be understand, understood as the expression of God's power through the Holy Spirit to enable the disciples to boldly testify to the good news of Jesus. In fact, almost every time, every instance of, of some sort of miraculous event in the course of Acts, we find following very very closely on the coattails of that event a verbal and intelligible gospel declaration and in, an invitation to faith and repentance in Jesus. The purpose of the miraculous is to validate the message of Christ. Preaching Jesus is far more important than healing people's crippled legs or blindness. People knowing Christ is far more important than than having money to make it through the day. So we should read and understand Acts 1.8 this way. When the Holy Spirit fills you, he will enable you to be a bold confessor of the truth of the, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and of salvation by faith in him. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, he will make you bold to preach the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying in Acts 1.8. And that's what we see uh, in the life of, of the disciples and the apostles in the church all throughout the course of Acts. They're not asking God to to do miraculous things. They're asking God frequently, help us to be more bold with the gospel. Give us more opportunities to preach about Christ. And so, friend, if you as a Christian are looking to the Holy Spirit to just do miraculous things all the time for the sake of doing miraculous things, you've missed it. And you've missed what the Holy Spirit really comes and empowers you to do. He doesn't empower you to miraculously heal people on the side of the road. He comes to empower you to boldly proclaim the gospel everywhere you go. To be filled with the Spirit is to be empowered to boldly go where no one has gone before to share the gospel. There's a Star Trek joke in there. To be filled with the Spirit is to stand before kings and emperors with the sword at your neck and still proclaim Christ and Him crucified. To be filled with the Spirit is to have an unshakable determination to tell people about Jesus and how they can be right with the Father by trusting in the Son. Unfortunately, in the course of maybe the last century or so, many Christians have understood the relationship of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, They've understood it wrongly. They've misunderstood how they work in the life of the believer. Very often we think of God, the Father, as this sort of faraway, uh, you know, distant person of God who's angry about our sin. And so he sends us Jesus to kind of fix things and, and kind of you know, uh, quell that tension a little bit and, and fix things up a little bit for us so that things aren't quite so bad. And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And now all we do is we just we live life in the Spirit. We, always, we just look to the Spirit and we just follow the whim of the Spirit and the leadership of the Spirit. Friends, that's not how God works in Scripture. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is given by God and Christ the Son to empower His disciples and to draw them near to Christ, to win us to Jesus, to help us to walk with Him. And then once we come to Jesus and faith in Jesus, we're then united by faith to Jesus and made right with the Father. So God the Father is not this faraway, distant, uh, angry God with a long white beard in the sky who's just mad about your sin and just wants to smite you. No, God, the father, he is angry about our sin. He does judge our sin and rightfully so he's just, but he also loves us and he loves us to the extent that he sent his son, Jesus, to make the only sacrifice that could be made for our sins. And as Jesus is raised from the dead, he ensures our eternal life. And as he ascends into heaven, he's able to then send the Holy Spirit to indwell the hearts of believers, to draw them nearer to Christ and in their relationship with God. Do you see how the, the, the Trinity, all three persons of of God are working to there and for our good So friends the holy spirit in us is not a different god than god the father or the son He's of the same stuff as the father and the son a different person Of god that we interact with slightly differently But the holy spirit leads us and leads others to jesus and jesus leads us to the father So don't get that whole thing backwards Understand that the gift of the spirit is in us to help us to walk in closeness with christ and to grow closer to the father Understand what powers the mission. It it is the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who love Christ and have been made right with God by their faith in him. And then third and finally, we see from verses 9 through 11 that you've got to, the disciples have to, and we do as well. Get your eyes on the object of the mission. Get your eyes on the task of the mission. Here in verses 9 through 11, we read Jesus ascending uh, back into heaven in front of the disciples. He he goes up in a cloud and he's taken out of their sight. And all of the disciples are just standing there like, just wide-eyed, jaws on the floor. What is happening? And they're staring into heaven. The the word that is is used means gazing intently into heaven. It's a very human moment at the outset of Acts for us or where many other uh, attempted histories of supernatural events might would seek to display the heroes or the characters of those events, in, in particularly, uh, um, just in a really good light, as unflinching and totally faithful and devoted, astute observers of the, of the will of the gods. Luke does not do that. Luke paints, he portrays the disciples as they are. He highlights and points out these moments in the lives of the disciples where they do what ordinary people would do in the presence of extraordinary events. Right? These disciples aren't superhumans; they're not, you know, super soldiers or super saints. Or they're normal people like us who are experiencing Christ's ascension into heaven for the first time and in a miraculous way. And they're left staring into heaven. And these two angels appear that say, "Men of Galilee, what are you doing staring into heaven?" They kind of ask the obvious question, right? Like, "What are you, goobers? What are you doing?" This Jesus who is ascended is going to come back in the same way. And in so doing, they send uh, the, the disciples back on course in terms of what they are to be doing. Stop staring at the sky. Get about what Christ has called you to be about. How many of us have ever in our life with... Christ and our desire to follow him, maybe even in our faith and our Bible study, just sat there staring into heaven, waiting for Jesus to like do something miraculous to show us some sort of sign when we have all of the instructions right in front of us. And we know what Christ has called us to do. We've, we've listened to, his, to, to God's leadership and to his wisdom. We've spent time in prayer. We have these instructions. We know what's right. And then we sit. We, we still sit there and stare and wait for God to do something miraculous. It's like you've, 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 you've got the mission. You've got the instructions. You've got the, the spirit of God which empowers you to go on mission. What are you waiting for? Friends, we who know and love Jesus... We who know the mission that, that Christ has given to us today, we have no excuse to disobey His command. We also have no reason to fear what He has called us to do. And frankly, we have no time to waste. We have no excuse to disobey because Christ is King. He is Lord. At the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, He says, All authority on heaven, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is king of everything. There is no greater source of authority to command us to do anything. So we have no excuse to disobey if we love Christ and want to follow him. He, he, he is king of kings, lord of lords. He has all authority in the universe to command us to do things. So we have no reason, no excuse to disobey. But we also have no reason to fear. Why? Because God and the Holy Spirit is present in us every step of the way. We're going to see that in the course of this book as, as the disciples will routinely... As Luke will say, being filled with the Holy Spirit, will proclaim boldly, even in the face of death, the truth of Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. We have no reason to fear because there's no one who can do anything to our soul. Nothing, no one who can separate us from God. We who trust in Christ, there's no reason to fear. And friends, there's no time to waste. There's no time to waste. We live in a world of over 7 billion people. Where the majority, 6 billion or more, do not have a relationship of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And apart from a relationship with him, they are dying and going to spend an eternity separated from God in hell. Friends, there is no time to waste on mission. We have the king. We have his orders. We have his promised power to enable us to do this thing. And there's no time to spend doing anything else or anything better than fulfilling this mission. I think Benjamin Franklin once said, Why do today what you can put off to tomorrow? So as to proverbialize the. Concept of procrastination. I procrastinated a lot in high school. I remember in a high school history class, we had to uh, we had a project that was due, and a, a friend of mine and I were uh, creating a uh, a model of the uh, of the Parthenon, uh, which existed in Greece, huge temple, and we were making it out of foam core and little wooden dowels and all this thing. and And we waited until about two days before the thing was due to start putting it together. This is going to be a big model. We spent like two nights, up till two or three in the morning, working on this thing. Just sweating it out and and trying to grind through. And the end product was nothing like what we envisioned. There was some other kid who who had a dad with power tools that we didn't have, who was able to create a far better replica of whatever it was. was. But we put it off for a long time, and the end result was not very good. Guys, if we know that it's not good, that it's not right to procrastinate in small, non-urgent matters... How much more will God hold us accountable for procrastinating in the most urgent thing in the universe, which is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ to those who need to hear it? Friends, there's no time to waste on this mission. And we're going to see in the course of this book and over the course of the year, men and women given, who, who will give their lives in the pages of Acts for this mission because it is so urgent. May God fill our hearts with the urgency that He filled the disciples with for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. May He do that in our church this year. And may we see the fruit of God's empowering us on mission and our desire to be obedient to the King as we take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations in 2018. Let's pray.